Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Eugen Lee. And with us today is Christian Miller, A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. His book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, is out from Oxford University Press, and he's here to discuss virtue and character. Christian Miller, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So virtue is kind of an old-fashioned word. You know, you, when you hear the word virtue, you kind of, it doesn't really feel like something that kids would say. You know, it feels more like something maybe you'd read in like an old Dickens novel or something. Um, so I thought maybe we could like talk a bit about what virtue is and maybe just start with some examples. What would be like an everyday example of like virtuous behavior or a virtuous person? Sure. Uh, so I think that we want to distinguish between a virtuous person, a virtuous behavior, and a virtue. Uh, an example of a virtue would be honesty. An example of a virtuous behavior is telling the truth, say, on the stand in the courtroom. And an example of a virtuous person who is honest would be Abraham Lincoln. So I like to distinguish between the person who's honest, uh, the trait itself, honesty, and then the behavior exhibiting honesty in a particular moment, particular time and place, uh, say, in the example of the courtroom. In a larger context, uh, when we step back from a particular example, we can talk just what is a virtue in general? What's the contrast with that? A vice. What is a vice in general? And then I can be happy to give you some more examples as well. So character comes in these two components, virtue and vice. A virtue I think of as a disposition to think, feel, and act in a certain morally positive or appropriate way. And I think of a moral vice as the opposite, a disposition to think, feel, and act in a morally inappropriate or vicious way. So what does that mean? Is that that's a rather abstract characterization of these traits? Take the example of honesty again, and let's unpack what that virtue involves. We have a disposition to think a certain way. So think honest thoughts. Think, for example, that telling the truth is important and that cheating is wrong. Feel a certain way. Have certain motivations and emotions. In a case of honesty, it might be a desire to tell the truth, uh, a lack of desire to cheat for no good reason. And then we have behavior, the upshot of the thinking. So we have someone who acts in an honest way by telling the truth and not cheating on a test or on their taxes. So to sum it up, that's how I think of virtues, as dispositions to think, feel, and act in a certain way. And then when it comes to vices, you just invert it. All the same apparatus is in place, all the same structure is in place. It's just that now we're thinking about bad things. We're thinking about desires to cheat, desires to steal, desires to uh, lie, and then thoughts as well and behavior as well. Okay, good. So the point of drawing a distinction between all these things then is to say that you can have one without the other in principle, right? So you could have somebody on one occasion do something virtuous without generally being a virtuous person. Maybe that was the only time they did anything virtuous and vice versa, right? Maybe you could have a bad person just know, by accident or something or, or whatever, or, or just, there was, I don't know, the planets were in alignment and that one time they did something great, but generally they're bad. Uh, and so the, because these things don't always go together, uh, we draw distinction. That's right. Yeah, that's very well put. It's not just in, in one instance either. You can actually see a pattern of behavior, and you can wonder, well, what's going on behind that behavior? What was the cause of that behavior? So you could have morally appropriate behavior that arises from less than admirable motivation. Similarly, you can have morally inappropriate behavior 
that might have been for good reason or with good, good, a good heart and good intention. So to illustrate that a little bit more, take the example of honesty again. Someone could reliably tell the truth, could reliably not cheat or steal, but then when we get a little bit deeper into their psychology, we ask, well, why they behave that way? Maybe it was just for egoistic reasons like to relieve their feelings of guilt or to earn rewards in the afterlife or to not get punished by others. And so the behavior, not just in one instance, but across a variety of situations might be admirable. We might say that behavior is virtuous, but until we know more about the underlying psychology which gave rise to the behavior, we can't actually infer that the person is virtuous yet. We need to have the internal component and the external component both be morally positive in order for there to be virtue. Right. So it's not just like somebody regularly and predictably does the right thing, but when they do the right thing, they understand what's right about it and they do it for the right reason. That's right. That's very well put. And I think there's a lot of kind of intuitive support for that idea. Not everyone, I should say, not all philosophers agree with this picture. This is what would be called a, an Aristotelian approach to virtue. So it's very much influenced by Aristotle's thinking. Other philosophers sometimes say that all these components are not necessary. Maybe they'll focus on reliable success and good outcomes. So long as your behavior gives rise to good outcomes or good consequences, that's enough for you to be a virtuous person. I uh, side with Aristotle here and I side with more traditional thinking. In part, uh, I do that because of the intuitive force of certain examples. So here's an example that I think is pretty important to at least my thinking about virtue. Uh, It's the example that is not original to me. It's owed to Michael Stocker in a famous paper called The Schizophrenia of Modern Ethical Theories. And in that paper, he has this example where you're in the hospital. Let's tell the example this way. You're in the hospital and a friend comes to visit you and you've been there for a long time. You're kind of lonely. You're wondering where your friends are. Here comes a knock on the door. Your best friend comes in and says, hey, I'm, I'm here, here to see you. How are you doing? And you're really happy. You're, you're thrilled. Your friend's here to, to check on you. But then as the conversation unfolds, uh, it turns out that your friend is there just because, say, your friend was bored and had nothing else to do. Or your friend was thinking, I'm going to be really guilty if I don't go visit so-and-so. Somebody bribed them. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. These kind of things. And then, then you think, well, the action, I mean, if that was me in the hospital, I would be disappointed. I would say, well, it's great that you're visiting me, but are you really my friend? Is this what I would expect of a compassionate person? And my intuition is no. I would expect of a compassionate person a person who has the virtue of compassion to come visit me, do the, a great action, right? Uh, do the right thing here, but for the appropriate underlying reasons or motivations. In this case, for altruistic reasons, because they care about me, because they're my friend, because they were concerned with my well-being. That's the kind of thing I would expect of a virtuous person. I think it's all very interesting how being virtuous, doing good thing constantly for a good reason. Uh, so I wonder where do we come into that picture? How virtuous or how vicious are we? Right, yes, uh, that's a big question. Um, I hope we have some time to, to unpack, enough time to get really into that. So there's a question, first of all, of what virtue is. That's a classical philosophical question. We can do some kind of armchair analysis and try to unpack the concept of a virtue, unpack the concept of a vice, and get, generate some standards. What does motivation have to look like? What does behavior have to look like? And so forth. And also, we could disagree about what exactly the virtues are, right? We're, yeah. we're trying to be agnostic about that, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're right. There's plenty of disagreement traditionally, going back in the history, about what the list of virtues is, how long is it, what virtues are on it, which ones are not. What my approach has been is to just try and pick paradigm 
examples that where, where there's lots of agreement, virtues like honesty, compassion, courage, uh, justice, and stay away from more controversial ones, say chastity, humility, some ones where there's going to be a lot of uh, controversy, I think it would be distracting from the main point I wanted to focus on. So there's all those clusters of issues. But then there's a whole other topic here as to, well, forget how we should be, how are we actually doing? What does our character actually look like, as a matter of fact? Where the we here could be Americans, it could be Westerners, it could be people in general, it could be people in the past, present, future. So for that kind of discussion, uh, which I find really important and interesting as well, you can look to different sources of data, probably not armchair analysis, right? It's not gonna get you much uh, insight there, but you could look to historical uh, research, you could look to current events, you could look to the news, you could look to religious teachings. My approach here, though, has been to look to psychological studies, behavioral studies in particular in psychology, which put a group of people into a certain kind of situation which was morally relevant and saw how they behaved. Uh, when they had an opportunity to cheat, did they end up cheating? When they had an opportunity to lie, did they end up lying? When they had an opportunity to steal, did they end up stealing? When they had an opportunity to help, did they end up helping? Harm and so forth. And so uh, to kind of cut to the chase, and I'd be happy to probe some of these studies and get into some examples if you like, uh, but to cut to the chase, after reviewing literally hundreds of these studies going back to the 1960s to the present day, I kind of came up with my own take on what those studies suggest most of our characters is like. And my take is that it's actually a mixed bag, that there's good evidence to think that most of us are not virtuous on the one hand, so we fall short of virtue. But on the other hand, most of us are not vicious either. So we rise above vice. So whether you want to take that as good news or bad news, um, we're better than we could be, but we're not as good as we should be. I think the ultimate takeaway here is that we occupy, in general, most of us, a space intermediate between moral virtue and moral vice, uh, what I call a mixed character or have a set of mixed traits. Final uh, word here, that's what I think is true for most of us. And I use the word most intentionally. It's not a claim about all of us. I think there's a, a bell curve going on here where you're gonna have some outliers on the virtue side, you're gonna have some outliers on the vice side. And so you can take your favorite examples of each. You can take your Abraham Lincoln, your Harry Tubman on the one side, you can take your Hitlers and your Stalins on the other side. They're gonna be the outliers. Most of us are gonna be in this murky middle in between. So I wonder what determines how good or how bad we are. So there are two ways to answer that. On the one hand, there's a, an ethical question. Uh, well, the, the ethical standards we use help decide whether we're good or bad, right? So what standards of virtue are we holding people to? What standards of vice are we holding people to? And then there's the empirical or psychological question. What's our psychology like? What is our, our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, and then ultimately our behavior that stems from them like. And so to take that, I think I'll focus on the second one of those. If we were seeing widespread virtue, then we would expect to see people having a psychology whereby they uh, you know, have virtuous reasons, motives, think well, morally speaking, and then exhibit a pattern of cross-situationally consistent and stable moral behavior over time. I look at the psychological research, 
I don't see that. I'm not conducting the studies myself. I'm reading what others have done already, but I'm not seeing the pattern of behavior nor the underlying psychological explanations for those behaviors that what I would expect if we were virtuous people. But, and here's the flip side of that, the same is true for vice. Right? If people were by and large vicious, you would expect to see kind of evidence of certain thought patterns, certain motivational patterns, and certain behavioral patterns. Cross-situationally consistent, vicious behavior. Well, how's the psychology literature look there? I don't see evidence for that either. What I said to see, and um, maybe to take it down a level of abstraction, is people exhibiting good behavior in some situations, not exhibiting good behavior in other situations. The difference between those situations might be rather slight, rather insignificant. So maybe at this point I could give you an actual study and to help illustrate Yeah, it sounds great. So I'll, I'll give you a, a couple. Um, here's one that I've used for a long time. It's by a psychologist Robert Barron. And it has to do with the effect of smells on helping behavior in shopping malls, which might seem like rather random, but I think it's just one study to illustrate the larger point I'm making. Control participants were people who were in the shopping mall, past clothing stores, so neutral sites in the shopping mall, and then were given an opportunity to help. And roughly speaking, they helped at about 15%. I don't remember the exact number, but somewhere in around 15%. The experimental subjects, the one that were really of interest to the experimenters, were those shoppers who didn't know that they were part of a study, they were just being covertly observed, but who had passed Mrs. Fields cookies or Cinnabons. You know what that's like, you know that there's a smell, it smells pretty good, and then they were given, this is the same day, same shopping mall, and then subsequently the same helping task. It, what was the helping task in this case? Was it like inviting people to donate to a charity or, you know, uh, to give money to somebody in need? Or what was the, what was yeah, the nature that, of the task? They had, they had more than one task. Uh, one of them was to make, help make change for a dollar. I think another one might have been pick up drop papers or, or something like that. Rather small tasks. But whatever the tasks were, there was a stunning difference between the two groups. Because in this experimental group, helping was in the 60s. Again, I don't know the exact number, but it's around 65%. So 15% versus 65% were the only difference, if the experiment was done very well, carefully, was the presence or absence of the smell. So what's the underlying story here? Well, in this experiment, I think the, the best explanation is that the smell put people in a good mood. Uh, that triggered a desire to maintain the good mood and the helping opportunity provide an opportunity to maintain the good mood. Without getting bogged down too much in the weeds of the story, um, the upshot is that here um, you see a big difference in behavior, helping, no helping, and the situational variable is rather insignificant, smell, no smell. The motivational story is not what you would expect of a virtuous person. It's not they're helping for morally admirable reasons, they're helping to maintain a good mood. So you've got a, a mixed bag here. On the one hand, people did help, right, in the, in the smell condition. That's positive. On the other hand, their motivation was egoistic to maintain a good mood. And how were we able to tell what their motivation was? Was it by asking them? Or? Um, no, 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 no. Um, so the larger story here is, uh, frankly, we don't know. If you want to cut to the chase, we don't know in this particular case. There has been research outlining different motivational explanations for these kinds of effects and then testing them and seeing which explanation seems to be the best supported by the 
body of studies cumulatively. And so I, I should be more cautious and say this is currently, I think, the leading explanation, but it's by no means definitive. And there are competing ones out there as well. All of which, by the way, turn out to be egoistic too. So even if another one of these explanations emerged as a better one, it still serves to make the point that I, I want to mm -hmm. make. So that's one study. And if I may, um, yeah. I can give you one more uh, just to give it a uh, rather different area of morality and a rather different task. So this shift to a setup where a participant would come in, take a 20-problem test with a 50-cent per correct answer incentive. In the control condition, there was no opportunity to cheat. The participant would take the test, turn it in, it'd be graded by the, the experimenter in charge, be paid accordingly, we were done. That gives us a baseline. In one version of this study, participants got seven out of 20 correct on average. Now here's- Was it like general knowledge or- uh, Anagrams, anagrams. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, um, spotting anagrams. Yeah, um, that, I mean, that by itself is not very interesting. Here's the interesting variation. Um, different participants, same test. This time though, they got to grade the answer key themselves, shred their materials, and verbally report how many they got correct. So the idea is that they could say whatever they wanted and there would be no you know, evidence to the contrary. So if they wanted to cheat, they could. If they didn't want to cheat, they didn't have to, um, but there was still the monetary incentive, 50 cents per correct answer. And so in the, the version I'm thinking of right now, seven correct in the baseline, 14 correct, and now I'm doing air quotes in uh, correct in the uh, shredder condition. So what this suggests is people who were willing to cheat, but they were also not willing to cheat to the maximum extent. Hmm, yeah. Because it, it could have said 20. Right. Uh, and it got away with it. They could have been paid more. They went up to 14, which is, which is significant, but they didn't go as much as they could have. It's kind of weird. Maybe they're looking for the veneer of plausibility or something. I don't know. Well, uh, if you want to probe this one more deeply, uh, there is a, an emerging psychological explanation for this too. Let me give you one more variant first, though, of the study. And then I'll help to clarify the psychological explanation. So a uh, different set of researchers worked with the same paradigm, but took it one step further. So they had the baseline, and in their test, people got about three correct. So it was a harder test. They had a shredder condition, and in that version, they, participants got about six correct at 20. So again, not going all the way to 20 like they could have. They had a third version where now we're gonna have the shredder, like we did before, uh, we're gonna have the monetary incentive, we're gonna have the same test, but before they take the test, participants sign the honor code of their school. Would that make any difference? Well, before telling you the results, you might think, well, if people are dishonest, if they're really cheaters, you wouldn't expect that to make a difference, right? Like, would it just be a formality, they sign the honor code. It's just another lie in addition to the lie of the cheating. Yeah, right? exactly right, and yeah. so you wouldn't expect to see a difference. Turns out, it made a big difference the uh, average performance in that condition was back down to the baseline level. Now, why do I introduce that? Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it helps support my case of uh, mixed character, and we can say more if you like. But now to directly address your point about what's the explanation, what's the psychology going on here, the leading model, not the only one, you know, maybe not will emerge as not the true one, is this. On the one hand, we want to cheat when we think we can get away with it, and it would be rewarding to do so. On the other hand, we want to be able to think of ourselves as honest people. 
And in general, we want to think of ourselves as good people, but let's just stick with honesty. So it's important to us to be able to have this self-image of an honest person. Well, when you've signed the honor code, that triggers or brings to mind your moral values and what you care about and what kind of person you want to be. And from there, it's very hard to turn around and cheat, blatantly cheat. Because it's going to be very hard to continue to think of yourself as an honest person when you're doing that. Similarly, we want to think of ourselves as an honest person and we want to cheat too. That's why maybe we would cheat to some extent. Maybe we'd say 6 out of 20 in that study or in the first study I referenced, 14 out of 20, but not 20 out of 20. Because it's really hard to think of yourself as an honest person if you say 20 out of 20. But if you just cheat a little bit, you can... uh, you fudge things a little bit. You'd be like, I'm mostly honest or something. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 right. There you go. Uh, those are two studies. On the one hand, the, the, the impact of smells in the environment with respect to compassion. And on the other hand, the opportunity to cheat, including uh, having an honor code in place. And what does that tell us about honesty or dishonesty? Or in my view, how we're in the middle, in the mix. If we, we are a mixed bag of good and bad and they're conflicting with each other as if a battlefield. Do we have any control over it? Over our character and whether we can improve our character? Right. Right. Um, That is an empirical question. Traditionally, I think many people who work on character have said yes. So both in the ancient Greek tradition and in classical religious traditions, people have said whatever character you have at the moment you're not stuck with, you can work on it and it's malleable to some extent. But that was largely just a claim uh, or maybe an assumption. Today, we have something else we can look to, which is, again, the psychological research. So I think it's, since it is an empirical question, at the, you know, fundamentally, whether we have some control over our character, whether we can shape it, or whether other things can shape it as well, uh, is an empirical question which we should consult the experts, not necessarily the philosophers. So I should say I've not read extensively in this literature, but what I have read in the relevant personality psychology literature strongly suggests that we do have some degree of control over our character. But it has to be qualified in various ways. First of all, uh, it need not be every aspect of our character. It need not be uh, different parts of our character at the same moment in time. That needs to be qualified in various ways. First of all, it may be that some aspects of our character are more recalcitrant or resistant to change than others. Um, Secondly, it means, I think, uh, when I look at the the empirical literature, that the change is usually slow and gradual. We can't just snap our fingers and make ourselves go from being dishonest to honest overnight or make ourselves significantly more compassionate than we actually are right now. We might want that to happen. We might want to be much more compassionate, but we can't just make ourselves be that way instantaneously. So... Here I I see actually some empirical support for what Aristotle would have talked about in terms of slow, gradual habituation. Um, So over time, through practice and repetition, uh, with good aims and good ends in mind, uh, one can make gradual, with some setbacks and some uh, stumbles, but gradual progress over time. Now, I didn't say in what direction, though. So the progress, the, the control, and the change could go in the positive direction. Of course, it can also go in the negative direction. So there's nothing to say that we can't control our character in such a way that we actually can become worse people over time. So that's how I think about it. And then 
given that way of thinking, I try to think of what concrete practical strategies can we try to adopt to facilitate that, right? I mean, we could leave it up to, uh, like, just hope it's gonna happen. Like, I wanna become more virtuous, I just hope it happens naturally. And, you know, if it happens to you, that's great. You're like, you know, I'm not gonna be down on that. But are there any more intentional, concrete, practical strategies we can implement to try and nudge the process along? And so in the book, I devote uh, three chapters to uh, practical character improvement strategies. Like if I had to guess based on the two experiments we discussed, what the takeaway is for becoming a better person, I mean, I might say, well, A, carry around a vial of something I can sniff that smells like Mrs. Fields cookies and smell (laughs) it all the time. And B, have a little notebook in which I write down uh, the kind of person I want to be and like read it to myself regularly, uh, you know, to keep myself from cheating. Um, So uh, I guess what I'm wondering is like, what do you think the takeaway is from the empirical study of human psychology about um, how we can improve ourselves? Right, right. Um, One takeaway is that there is no magical formula. Uh, there is no... You mean I can't carry around a vial? <laughs> you can if you want to, but it's, it, it might be disappointing in the results. Um, uh, so if there was one try, kind of tested, well-validated method that we could all sign up for and it would uh, produce really reliable results, that would be great to make our jo- my, my life so much easier and, uh, and make our world better, I think. Um, so what instead is, I've, or what my best kind of takeaway from the empirical literature is to distinguish between a variety of different strategies and assess them one at a time. And so in one chapter of the book, I go through three strategies, which I don't think are very promising, so I'll leave them to the side. And in another chapter of the book, I talk about three strategies, which I do think are more promising. By delimiting these strategies, I'm at least putting them on a table for people to consider, investigate, employ, see which might work better, and, but they're not exclusive. So ultimately, I think it's gonna be a multifaceted approach. So to give you, take that down a level of abstraction and give you a couple examples of these strategies. One is uh, kind of what you suggested uh, with your taking out the notebook. Uh, so it's the idea of having more reminders in one's life, which is the notebook is an illustration of that. So it's a familiar fact that during the course of the day, we can be pulled in different directions and be tempted to do various things. And self-interest is a, always a uh, powerful motivator, and often for good reason. But what a moral reminder can do is help us get back on track, morally speaking, help us refocus on what our moral values are and what we think is most important in life. The moral reminders could take the form of, I guess, you know, literally a notebook. They could take the form of a daily reading to start one's day. I know many people do that kind of thing. Uh, could take the form of journaling. Uh, which is another common thing to uh, kind of stand back and self-assess what's been going on in one's day and, and take stock. Uh, could take the form of text messages that you've signed up to get uh, or emails that you've signed up to get on a daily basis uh, to kind of give you that reminder. So that's one approach, and that's coming from studies like the Honor Code study. Because what is the Honor Code serving to accomplish? Well, it's serving as a moral reminder. Those students weren't maybe not as paying attention as much to their moral values, they sign the honor code where they have to pledge their name that they are going to abide by the, the values of their institution. Suddenly, morality is much more salient in their minds. There's that. I'll give you one more, uh, if that's okay. Uh, a different strategy 
is to look to moral exemplars, moral saints, moral heroes, moral sages, and have them serve as a couple of things. One, a very helpful standard to aim towards. But then two, also serve as a basis for inspiration. Uh, so both a cognitive aspect, this is something, someone I know I could be like, or I want, I think it's important to be like, or who can teach me what it is to get, live a good life. But also, secondly, who's inspirational, who motivates me to change my life and become more like that person. So in the book, I talk about Leopold Socha as an example of this. Someone who, during World War II, was in charge of the sewer system in a small town in Poland. And then they, before they were captured, he was able to get 20 Jews down into his sewer system and hide them away. The Nazi occupation persisted, persisted, persisted. Over the course of a year and a half, the Nazis occupied that town, which meant that he had to go down into that sewer system every day with food and water and crawl on his hands and knees through the filthy pipes to bring the necessary you know, um, food and water to the people there. And Event risking his life, right? Because if he'd gotten caught, that would have been it. Right? That would it. Yeah. yeah, just one slip up. In the course of that year and a half, it would have been it for them and for him. Eventually, the Russians invaded, liberated the town, and he was able to bring out uh, 10 of the 20 he initially hid there. 10 died, unfortunately, in the sewer system. So what's the point? Well, when I read about this person's life, he teaches me concrete things about compassion. But he also, I have an emotional response to him. I admire him and what he did, which can then in turn inspire me, or what the psychologist Jonathan Haidt would say is elevate me to want to become more like him. Whether I actually become more like him is a separate question, but at least I want to become more like him. And that's the power that role models can have in our lives. They needn't be you know, as dramatic as Leopold Socha. They need not be historical figures. They could be your neighbor. They could be a mentor. They could be uh, a family member. They could be a, a fellow uh, student in your dorm. Someone who excels at a particular virtue more than I do, who I could look to as a basis for emulating and becoming more like that person in that one respect. Not in all respects, of course. I'm never going to be a sewer worker. I don't, I don't know. Nazis and so forth. But in that relevant, the key respects, hopefully I become more like that person. One big uh, empirical result from the research into acquiring languages seems to be that you learn a language a lot better by actually speaking and interacting with people uh, during the um, critical period for language acquisition uh, than by just sort of passively observing like a character on TV or, you know, listening to a podcast or what have you. So it's the interaction that really gives you the skill. And I wonder if something analogous applies here. So like, you know, admiring a really great person, you know, from long ago might be a little bit different from uh, like um, how deep of an understanding of how to be a good person it imparts to you versus like actively fraternizing with people in your life that can, uh, that you, where you can sort of like grow together with them. Yeah, that seems extremely plausible to me. Uh, it's an empirical hypothesis. We'd have to test it. Of course. Uh, and, and there is not nearly enough research in this area to say with some confidence. There has been some initial research that when we look to different kinds of exemplars, more relatable real world, closer to one's personal life exemplars, have more of an inspirational value in fostering better moral behavior 
than the opposite kind of exemplars. So there's some preliminary research there by Hyman Han and, and others. But at this point, I'm just going to have to say, from the armchair, seems extremely possible. Yeah, I think it also corresponds to the common sense idea of good and bad influences. They need not be uh, conscious role models, but they are there and they have an impact on our decision making and our character. Right. So there, there we can kind of broaden out not just having role models, but just having good influences in our life, right? And what form those influences can take could vary extensively. So they could be people who are good role models. They could be a teaching or a book or a something that one reads. They could be some of these environmental variables as well that even subconsciously are serving as a good influence on us. So I would not want to exclude any of these kinds of good influences. Also, we have to keep in mind the opposite is true as well. Bad influences can take all those forms too. Uh, bad in, uh, environmental influences, uh, bad readings that one's exposed to. So uh, influences can take a lot of different forms. So I feel like at a certain level, popular culture is broadly in agreement with your core view, your core view being that nobody's 100% good, nobody's 100% bad, we're all like 50% in the middle. And I guess the thing that makes me think that is uh, like you know the popularity of like TV shows and movies with like antiheroes like Breaking Bad things like that where we just sort of revel in all this moral ambiguity and like and see the different sides of people. So then that in turn makes me wonder: Is there a broad takeaway here for our practices of praising and blaming people? Um, do you think we should do that differently from the way we do it now? Like the way we do it now is too black and white. Good. So two parts to my answer. First. To some extent, I think you're right about popular culture, but here's a caveat. Uh, when it comes to self-ratings of one's own moral character, you don't see the 50-50. That's an excellent point. Uh, so you see people giving quite high ratings of their own character. Right. So, yeah. so some of these uh, surveys that have been done say it's one to five, with five being virtuous and one being vicious. And at the broad level, how good are you or how virtuous are you? And at the trait level, so how honest are you, how courageous are you, how compassionate are you, people reliably give themselves about a four out of five. Okay, right. Uh, so that, that <laughs> It's just like the, the cheating on the test, right? 14 out of 20. Right, yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not a five, right? <laughs> yeah. They, they go up. Yeah, right, right. Um, uh, so there's that. And that gives rise to an error theory, on my view. So people have this kind of evaluation of themselves. And then also they may tend to evaluate others fairly readily as virtuous or vicious. And on my view, those valuations turn out to be false. So this is what philosophers call an error theory when you make judgments which you think are true, but in fact are false. So that's one area where I think that people need to readjust their thinking about themselves and maybe about others. Now, onto the other part about praise and blame. So, I think caution is one big takeaway from my view. We too typically will see someone behave well in one instance and jump to the conclusion that they are a virtuous person. Someone does even a dramatic action of rescue or of helping. And we tend to jump from that to the conclusion that's a courageous person or that's a compassionate person. And so we praise 
not just their action, but them as a certain kind of person. My view is, yeah, let's praise the action. That's great. Let's not be hesitant about that. But we need to be hesitant and more cautious in jumping to praise of the person's character until we know more about the person. Now, it could very well be that that action stems from a virtuous character. But that's an inference that needs to be supported by evidence. And then the same things can be true for blame. Uh, we readily, and maybe even more readily in the case of blame, go from one bad action to bad person. This person cheated on his taxes, therefore he's a cheater. This person told this egregious lie, therefore she's a liar. And so we blame them as being a certain kind of dishonest person. Well, again, I want to be more cautious. So I think the takeaway is hesitation, caution, and more information are what we need. So in your book, you mentioned that uh, moral character is probably the most important kind of character, but there are other kinds of character. There are intellectual character and religious characters. I wonder uh, how moral character relates to them. Yeah. Um, First of all, it's controversial whether you can actually draw these distinctions and how to draw them. It's also unknown what the boundary of the moral is and how to even define the moral to make it distinct from other, other kinds of things. So that's a the kind of lame answer, um, but it's an honest answer. When it comes to the um, standards of these other virtues, I think they function similarly. So I think they have a, a thinking component. I think they have a motivational component. I think they have a behavioral component. So there's a nice symmetry there. When it comes to the empirical side of the debate, what we've been discussing mostly today, there's a question, well, to what extent do people have those virtues or vices? And here, I've not delved into that as much. I've delved into just a little. So for example, with epistemic or intellectual virtues, there's some empirical evidence out there which would support a similar mixed picture to the one I have. But these are early days, and this is largely unexplored territory. And what would be like one or two examples of other kinds of character? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so there are categories. For example, there's intellectual character, and there might be something like intellectual honesty, or intellectual curiosity, intellectual humility, intellectual open-mindedness. Uh, we could shift to another category, say religious characteristics, so there might be something like faith, it's traditionally been thought to be a virtue, piety, religious obedience. We can shift to athletic category. There are virtues associated with being a good athlete. We can shift to um, virtues that are beneficial to you, things like uh, cleverness or diligence or perseverance or grit, which is a trendy notion these days. So there are lots of different categories. How to precisely distinguish those categories is a vexed matter. Um, but I think you could find virtues and vices in each of them. So we've talked a bit about how we can kind of nudge ourselves from the 50% position uh, in the direction of being good. Um, what if I want to become bad? Is there any, um, you know, sort of tactic that I can employ to become a worse person and nudge myself in the opposite direction? <laughs> um, so in all my years of talking and thinking about character, I've never been asked that before. Uh, and it's a, such a Intriguing question. I'm tempted to say, first of all, uh, I'm a little worried about you. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and Hypothetically speaking. Yes, yes, right. Um, and you should not want to become bad. And so uh, this, I should just not answer the question because I don't want to give anyone any kind of 
tools or resources. That's true. I never thought of that. Yeah. Um, so Copycat this, crime. <laughs> bad, this might have bad consequences. But, um, but I think the quick answer is pretty much everything I say to foster virtue could be easily adapted to foster vice. So instead of looking to those admirable role models, you look to the disadmirable ones and emulate them. Instead of having good moral reminders, you find more reminders in the opposite direction to uh, keep your focus on whatever it is you're interested in, like how to cheat or ways in which you can take advantage of other people. So when we go strategy by strategy, in a some sense, they're value neutral because they could be adapted for the good or for the bad. And let's hope that uh, they're used for the good. Right. And it also seems like there's potentially a risk of like unintentionally going the wrong way. Maybe you intend to make yourself a better person, but you accidentally, like you pick the wrong people to admire mm-hmm. by mistake and you accidentally make yourself worse. That's right. That's right. And that, that can certainly happen. And that also ties into questions about praise and blame. Uh, if that happens, would you be considered blameworthy? I don't, we have to know about the case. We have to flesh it out in a lot more detail. I'm tempted to say in that kind of case, uh, not blameworthy, but unfortunate and un- unlucky. And so uh, it's also worth trying to seek out good role models and figure out what makes them good and, and on what basis so that we don't fall into pitfalls like that. Well, there can be no question that we uh, picked a good role model for this episode. Uh, thank you so much, Christian Miller, for coming on Elucidations. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.